1979. And that was one of my favorite cartoons. And um, I happen to like spinach. I think it was a ploy to get kids to like spinach. But I would eat, I would eat a bite of spinach. And under the table, I would just be like, I'm flexing, so I'm waiting for my shirt to bust open, you know. And I mean, everything just, it's like the imagination just went. And what was so cool about 1979 is that it was all just a game. And that was, that was my focus. In a word, I would say this. I would say that I was childish, right? Part of the beauty of 1979 is that I was, I was highly irresponsible. And frankly, I loved it. The whole idea of play is that, is that I, I didn't have any responsibility. My job was essentially to play. And, and, and the way that, that God allowed me to learn about the world and figure things out was to, was to play. Now, slowly but surely, this has been trained out of me. Which, for the most part, is a really good thing, because I'm sure that my wife appreciates uh, me not just focusing on playing every single day. But I think there's just a part of me that says, man, I wish there were elements of that childishness that wasn't trained out of me. And they didn't leave somehow once you hit 12 or 13 or 15 or 18 or whatever the year might be for you. Irresponsible is something said, done, or characterized by a lack of a sense of responsibility. Usually we, we use it in a, in a negative way, don't we? Oh, that's so irresponsible of you. But I want to turn it on its head a little bit and, uh, and think about this, that being free from the burden of the sense of responsibility is really one of the hugest gifts of childhood. It just is. My daughter spent a good portion of yesterday, she told me this morning on the way into church, she told me she found a four-leaf clover. She said, Dad, I looked for a long time yesterday for that thing. And I'm just like, man, that is so cool. And I said, see, hard work pays off. You know, you found the four-leaf clover. And she doesn't have the responsibility. She has no idea what the Dow's doing right now. She's just not graphing it out with crayons, you know. That's not where she's at. And what's beautiful about childhood is that's the gift of it. You're, you're free from that responsibility. Here's my question for us this morning is, is what if we related to God as children? What if instead of always being so grown up in our walk with God, we related to God as children in this sense? This morning, John is going to tell us about a woman who did exactly that. In fact, in this kind of frantic moment of being overwhelmed with gratitude, flooded with pure joy, she just does this, this impulsive, reckless, completely illogical thing in worship of Jesus. She acts completely irresponsibly. The reason we know this is because of the response of the people who are near here, near her. And their comments start to come out. The other guests are shocked. Some are probably embarrassed for her and for themselves. In fact, not, it doesn't stop there. They, it kind of boils over into, into anger. And there's these chiding, belittling kinds of comments that are really intended to take this woman and say, let me usher you back into the safe little box and the social norm you're supposed to fit in because you've busted out and you clearly need to go back in there. And what I love about this story that we're going to look at is the reaction of Jesus. Jesus recognizes an act of pure worship when he sees one. And instead of belittling her, instead of putting her back in her place, you know what he does? He jumps to her defense. And in fact, the one that, that he corrects are the others, basically telling them to leave her alone. I love that. Part of the great news of the gospel, it's not just the bridge illustration that maybe you can memorize and share with someone. It's a good way of communicating some truth. But part of the great news of the gospel, part of what wakes me up in the morning and keeps me fired up, is God has revealed himself as Father to us. And that means we do get to relate to the Father as children do. And that is a great thing. Something's been lost when our worship is predictable and passionless. And I want to read in John chapter 12 right now. If you're there, uh, just follow along with me. Let me say a word of prayer. Father, I just lift up these next few moments, God, that you would speak powerfully through your word. 
through the, the things that you've brought me through this week and, and as you've been preparing my own heart, I pray you'd use my mouth right now, Lord, to be your words. Um, as Rob has already prayed, we just invite you, Holy Spirit, into this place to do your work. I pray that you would stir up areas of repentance and change that are needed. I pray, God, that you would awaken and enliven areas that have been deadened by this world and hardened by sin, God. I pray you'd give us hearts that are soft to your truth and empower our wills, God, to follow you courageously no matter what we learn in this book. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived at Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It is worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Verse 7, Jesus says this, Leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. And I'll pause there for now. This passage dives into worship. And in fact, as I read about it, really the whole, the whole passage we're going to look at this morning is talking about worship. And worship is hotly discussed and debated and talked about and written about. In fact, if you go to Berean right now, you could go there and find, I'm sure, whole aisles on worship. And the problem with that is much of it would discuss style of worship, volume that we should put the worship music at, um, different ways that the stage should be laid out or not laid out, to laser or not to laser. I mean, you know, and you just, you, it's all this kind of peripheral stuff. And as those of you who've been around here for at least a little while, I hope you get this, and I hope we have communicated this well, and I hope we live this, is that that's not anything really of what worship's about. That's talking way down on the side, peripheral type stuff. And we're going to look this morning a little bit about worship. What does it look like? How should we do it? I want you to turn in your Bibles over to First Peter. Go to the right a whole bunch. If you hit Revelation, go back a little bit. And in 1 Peter is this great passage. In fact, this is our memory verse for the week. We've been putting one verse a week that just kind of goes along with the big idea of what we're talking about. And um, just really invite you, challenge you as a family, uh, as an individual, as a community group, to commit to memory uh, some of these verses that, that talk about these different things. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and starting in verse 14. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. It's bonus time. We actually got two verses this week. Verse 15. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Worship is that right there. It's being holy in all that you do. Did you catch the first part? As obedient what? Children. He reveals us. He tells us who we are in relation to Him. We're His kids. We're His children. He says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires, but instead be holy. Holy just means set apart. As you think through your life, your life should be different from that of someone whose father isn't God. That means that every area of life, money and relationship and the way that you uh, carry out decisions, your job, food, just ought to be different. It ought to be set apart. It ought to be just that everything we do is an act of worship to God. At Neighborhood Bible Church, a couple of years ago, we started with really four things. And we haven't really veered from those four things. And one of the four things that we knew we were going to start this church with as a pillar of this church was worship. 
Because the, the, the challenge is, we could say we're here for the neighborhood and we want to be a servant and a light to this, to this community, which is absolutely true. But if you begin to do that, not from a heart of worship, it just goes bad. And so worship is just at the absolute core of what we're about. And something we've said over and over here is that it's a, it's, it's a, it's a lifestyle and not an event. It's not an event you come to. I came to worship. You may come and participate in worship, but it's not an event. It doesn't end in about 45 minutes. And we're fiercely committed to that. And that's something that we want to, to even have our language reflect and bear out. God is seeking worshipers. And you, you just look at this. I'm, I'm going I'm to basically let you know as we go through this. There are just, there's worship all through this. This sign here is a sign that is uh, right at the end of a road that um, if you go play golf somewhere in Monterey, it's not like uber expensive Monterey, it's like pastors can afford it Monterey, but there's some course that I found online, good deal, and I took this drive down there, and I'm, 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 I'm left is the golf course, to the right is this little chapel. <laughs> and I was like, yes, Lord, and he told me golf. So I went and played golf. Um, but I love that. Turn left to play, turn right to pray, you know. And, um, and the reality is, is that God is seeking after worshipers. And you just, and you just get this sense all through scripture. In both the Hebrew and Greek languages, there are, there are kind of two categories of words for worship. And the first category of word has to do with like kind of your body language. And it's body language that demonstrates worship. And so we read this all through the scriptures. I kneel down. I bow down. I fall prostrate. I lift my hands in worships. In, in, in worship, I, I, I close my Whatever it is. It's, it's describing a posture of worship. And just a little aside here. There's something in the posture of worship that just, that just sometimes helps direct and drag the will and the emotion and the rest of you along sometimes. It's not super comfortable to kneel down, is it? And after a few minutes, you have to adjust a little bit. And, and yet there's, just, there's, there's something about kneeling sometimes that just, it just, it's like, Lord, I mean, my body's even just going to obey right now. There's certain people, I went to a Christian college that had a wide range of, of uh, denominations present and a wide range of people present. And there's some people in worship, and here it is. First note goes, whoop! Up go the hands. Almost involuntarily. And part of that's just tradition. And it's very, very biblical to raise your hands. And then there's other people that would never in a million years raise their hands in worship. Either because they're self-conscious or because in their tradition that they were brought up in, you just don't do that. That's kind of too demonstrative. It brings attention to yourself. Or you're just not comfortable with it. There are some people, I was in high school choir back in the 80s, and uh, it was awesome. I mean, there was just hair everywhere, poofing out and hairspray and jewel-toned dresses, the whole nine yards. I remember a choir director would always go like this. He'd always be like telling everyone in the choir, he'd be like, smile. And he was a guy, I mean, this is how, and this is how he lived his life. And I remember going, this feels so weird. I can't even sing well like this. And after a while, I get tired and so it looks like I'm doing this. And this is weird. And it was 7.30 in the morning. It was the early service. I mean, who's smiling at that time, you know? And so I would try to smile. But honestly, I felt such release when I decided that that wasn't really who I was and that it was okay to express my worship not smiling like this. I was at a concert one time, and it was a worshipful concert, and I was super, super into this concert, and it was a driving, just, boom, song. And all these kids, I was with the youth group, and they're all just like, going, ah! they're just going nuts, they're jumping all over. I am in my chair, and I am just, I mean, like every hair on my arm is standing up, and I'm just, I'm just totally dialed into this thing, and this kid turns around to me, and he goes, what's wrong? And the, and the reality was, he read that, you know, this whole stadium is just jumping and going nuts. And here's the old dude sitting in a chair, you know. He thought I had a heart attack or something. You know, he's like, here, get some meds, you know. But I said, no, I'm, I'm totally good. And it kind of was like, leave me alone, you know. I'm enjoying this. But the, but the point is, is that we, we worship in different ways. I remember being challenged one time, if, if your tradition is not to raise your hands, 
I challenge you to raise your hands on this next song. If your tradition is to not raise, I mean, is to always raise your hands and stand up, I challenge you, sit in your chair and keep your hands down this time. And a part of what that did was it kind of, it kind of changed it up a little bit for people. And people who were really unused to it are like, I'm super self-conscious. You know, and they're just, have their hands up, but they're totally worried. And then after a while, they're just like, man, you know, I go to a Sharks game and you, you don't, you don't tell everyone there, hey, jump up out of your chair and raise your hands when you're excited. They just do it. They just jump up and they're just totally cheering. And for those who, it's all about the physical and jumping up and raising your hands, you know, they're like in their chair like this. They're like, you know, and they're just, they, they, it's hard for them. But it kind of, it kind of dials in this, this different thing. So posture in worship is really, is really something to pay attention to. And part of how maybe you're going to break out of your passionless worship or even just the routines that we have. We talk about this as a band all the time. Let's not just get into the routines of things. There's a change coming in a song in a, in a few moments that only a handful of us know about. But part of the change up is just to say, let's just change it up and not do it the same exact way every single time. So one whole category of words that talks about your body language and your posture. Read the Bible with that and you'll see it's just it's all over the place in there. Here's a second category of word is that you're doing something for God that demonstrates sacrifice and obedience. There's worship with body language and God's honored by that. And there's also worship in in doing something and just this this response. And part of what we do here is we pray. We read the word out loud. We hear the word taught every single week. We sing every single week. We stand up. We, we, we give our offerings. We celebrate communion. We watch and participate in, in, and enjoy a baptism. All of those are things we're doing in worship. But what if that's it? Hour and 15? Are you kidding me? That's all God gets? Forget about it. We walk out of these doors and then we worship as we go, Right? And we worship as we go to work on Monday morning. And we let our lives be a living sacrifice in the way that we serve and love and cherish our spouse. God is worshipped in different ways. No two ways about it. I want to briefly touch on Martha. Man, we are running out of time already. John chapter 12 uh, Martha's mentioned. This is the same Martha of Mary and Martha from the story in, uh, in Luke. Don't turn to Luke. Turn back to John here for a moment. But in verse 2, it says this. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served. I just want to point something out about Martha here. Just listen to Luke 1040. Remember this, Martha? But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me alone to do the work all by myself? Tell her to help me. And Jesus says this, Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things. So here's this rebuke to Martha. Remember, Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, right? Now, I know we can take this room and start to divide it a little bit in general with people-oriented folks and task-oriented folks. And you know who you are right now. Here's what's fascinating about this, and I, I love that, that Martha gets brought up again in a different context and a different light. You'll see some similarities. Martha is prone to task over people. No question about it. What's she doing in this scene? She's serving, right? Praise God for task-oriented people. I want you to hear that, task-oriented people. Without it, nothing would ever get done, right? We'd all just sit around and sing Kumbaya, and you know the dishes would pile up, and the laundry would go and, and uh, you know, all kinds of stuff. But it's good to know that, you know what, I'm prone to task over people. Uh, Martha, I would say, is probably busy and focused to a fault. I mean, she's rebuked by the Lord for this. You're, you're, you're busy and you're focused, but it's on the wrong things. And the Lord straight up rebukes her. There's a, there's a tendency of people who are task-oriented and type A and driven and focused on getting things done that they tend to lose sight of what's important sometimes. They tend to lose sight of what will really last. Someone who's really, really hyper-task-oriented is always thinking about the next event and the next event and the next event and planning months in advance. And sometimes when people get in the way of that, man, they just railroad right through them. 
I went to work uh, in Colorado when I first got engaged. And I went and worked at a bank there because that's what I knew to do. I was a banker here. I thought, well, I'll be a banker there and try to, try to you know, pay off my school and work my way through school. So after some training and whatnot, I'm sitting here in Colorado Springs at this bank. And um, I was used to, to being a banker here in Silicon Valley. And when you're a banker here, here's what you do. I'm, I'm much more of a people-oriented person. But I was really good, man. I could just fly with my left hand on those fingers. I could multitask. Hey, how's it going? And chat, you know, and talk with people. Loved it. I just loved seeing all the different people. We were in a super interesting part of town, so no day was the same, really. I mean, you just got everyone. But you moved. And when I trained people, I trained people to, to move. I said, you better do a really careful job because you're balancing your, you know, little box at the end of the day. You know, make sure you give out the right amount. But you got to move. And when you're in a, in, a, in a bank in Silicon Valley, people are, I mean, imagine yourself. What are you doing if you're sixth person back in the bank? You're looking at this. You know, I'm always checking to make sure every teller's working. You know, if two people are talking, I'm just looking at them. Does God want you talking right now or working? I mean, I want things to move, right? And that's what I was used to. I would be at the bank, and I, you could just feel the stairs. And I would just tell, that never bothered me. I'd look at it and like, wink. You know, I don't know. I, just, I, I was getting paid by the hour, right? But I, but I was a hard worker and a fast worker. I go to Colorado, and here's, here's what was so crazy. I start working there, and, um, and I'm just, I mean, I'm, I'm the, I, I kind of realize, I look down the teller line, I'm like, man, I'm the quickest person here. It wasn't a pride thing. It was a weird thing. Everyone was moving super slow. You know, they're just going super slow. And I'm like, man. And here, I'll never forget this. I look up and I look at the line. You know what people are doing in line? Talking. <laughs> Not to themselves. I mean, we had, at my bank, we had crazy people that talked to themselves. These people were talking to one another. They served coffee at this bank. And they're standing there with their little styrofoam cup. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. How are you doing? I'm going, what planet did I land on? I mean, I lived my whole life in San Jose, and I'm like, people, get upset, get rushed, what are you doing? They didn't care that we were moving slow. That was a totally different, it was a, a clear picture to me that people in Colorado live at a different pace than they do here. I don't know if it's the thin air or what's going on, but it was a radical different. And you know what? I just had to acclimate to that. And for me, being a people-oriented person, I was like, cool, I can chill out a little bit and, and, and go at that pace and figure that out. But to some of you in this room, that would drive you bonkers. That would make you absolutely crazy. And that's just a reality. We're wired differently, aren't we? So here's Martha. Here's, here's things that, uh, that, that, that those who, who gravitate towards doing and action and tangible will, will need to, to pay attention to. One is this. Don't neglect the inner life or your service is going to decay into envy and jealousy. What does Martha say about her sister? Hey, she's not working as hard as I am. Lord, tell her to get to work. If it's, if it's overflowing, if you're a task-oriented person, and it's just overflowing into service, and you're doing it for the Lord, you know what you're not doing? You're not really keeping score. You're not looking over at other people. In fact, you're actually able to, to consider them as more important than yourself, and you go, man, I so appreciate you because you remind me to just put all, everything down once in a while and just chill out and have a cup of coffee. Thanks for doing that. The, 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 the person who's task-oriented, the person who's driven, the person who is serving, don't stop serving. Don't put all that away and just try and sit and just do absolutely nothing all the time. That's not the message here, I don't think. God wired people a certain way. Paul didn't suddenly change personality into, you know, Mr. Rogers all of a sudden because he became saved. God took all that fire, all that passion, all that ambition, all that argumentative spirit, and he just put it to work for the kingdom. Praise God for that, or else we wouldn't be sitting here potentially. So God wants you that way. God wired you that way. But don't neglect the inner life. Don't think it's all just out surfacey doing this stuff and, and forget what's going on inside. Secondly, don't be distracted, worried, and upset about so many things. You know what that means? It means just keep putting Jesus as the priority. Those of you who struggle with this, just remind yourself. Right in the middle of a task, remind, why you're, you're, remind yourself why you're doing it. This is for Jesus. This is an act of worship. For Jesus. Let me move on. Mary. Mary's the one I want to focus on this morning. She's the one who gets more verses, and we're going to look at her. Mary is a picture of passion. 
I love to talk about passion. I love to talk about the fact that we've lost passion in this world. We just have. And you look at someone like Mary and you put yourself and you go, would you ever do something like that? Would you ever be the Mary in that story? And we want to unpack this a little bit and look at it a little bit more in depth. Yesterday, beautiful day, 70 plus degrees, right? I don't know about you guys, but my household goes nuts when it rains for a week. We got, I mean, if we had a chandelier, it would be gone because we'd all be swinging off it. I'd be swinging off it too. And my poor wife bears the brunt of it probably, but we just have energy in our home. And we will, when we don't get to get out, we all get a little crazy. That's why we don't live in Seattle. So it's a beautiful day yesterday. We decide to pack up the family chariot and go to the park. And guess what? Everyone else and their mother went to the park yesterday too. <laughs> so we're there and just it's just packed with people. And here was the coolest thing. We're there playing, and uh, I'm sitting here pushing kids on the, 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 the merry-go-round spinner thing, you know. Um, and we're just, you know, we're just chucking kids left and right. I mean, you know, eventually they just kind of spin off into the atmosphere somewhere. I'm like, good, glad that wasn't my kid, you know. We're having a total blast. And I look at my, look at my four-year-old. She's five in a few days, and Tegan's sitting on there. And uh, we'd have big kid rounds. And big kid rounds meant dad just went crazy and really pushed fast. Well, Tegan stayed on in the big kid round. And I know Tegan's a tough kid, so I'm like, no worries. I can't even possibly get her off if I tried. But the coolest thing about Tegan was this. We're not of the parental school that says, you know, allow your kid at any moment to have a picture taken that could be used in Baby Gap. You know, there are some of you that dress your kids so nice. I mean, they, they're always so well put together. We don't know how you do it. However you do it, kudos. You're just amazing parents. We're of the opposite school of thought, where um, to get into Baby Gap, you know, it's either a mistake or we really have to try and you got to do it like in the first five minutes or else it's all going to be undone and torn apart. We also believe our children should be allowed to dress themselves starting at about age two. So yesterday, getting out of the park, I looked down and for a split second got a little bit creeped out because Cassie's feet are going, Whoop! like her shoes are on the wrong feet. And so it just, it's a weird look. And you're like, oh, okay, you dressed yourself. That's cool. Then my four-year-old comes climbing out of the car and Deacon just has, you can do her hair up super cute and pretty and she just looks like an absolute doll. But in a couple of minutes, boom, this one's gone. There's dirt over here. You know, she's Tegan. That's, that's how it goes with her. And the coolest thing about Tegan is she had one pant leg totally tucked into her pink rain boots that came up mid-calf, and the other one kind of covering her rain boot, but just with one pant leg that was kind of hooked on to some little thing. And I'm just looking at this girl, and I go, there is a blissful ignorance, and who cares what people think about my shoes to being a kid? I love that. And she's at the park, and there's a gajillion people, and Tegan's just doing her thing with her pink rain boots. I think it's because that's the only boots that have been out lately because it's been raining so much. But she just doesn't care. And she's having an absolute blast. Remember my focus in 1979? It wasn't on my appearance. It certainly wasn't on what people thought about how I color-coordinated or whether I tucked one boot in and left one boot untucked. Guess where it is at four years old? It's on, I want to be on that thing that's going around super fast because that looks like an absolute blast. And that's where she was at. You know what I see in Mary in this passage? I see like a childlike, blissful, unaware to anything else that's going on. All she knows is she needs to worship her Lord. All she knows is she's absolutely overcome with worship. And I love that. She has zero regard for how she'd come off to others. Something else about Mary's worship she wanted her worship to cost her something. We just sang the song Undignified, where David dances really, really inappropriately in a way. Not in a weird, like, awkward sexual or, or you know, inappropriate that way, but socially inappropriate. And what Mary does here is socially inappropriate. In a sense, it's totally irresponsible. And it costs her something. She takes this, we don't know if it's a family heirloom or if she saved up a whole bunch or what, but it's almost like she just gets this idea and she's like, I know what I'll do. We don't have lots of record of this, of people doing this to Jesus. It's unprecedented. And yet she doesn't care. She's like, I have to do this. I have to give this to him. 
And so she does it. And she not only gives the perfume, but she uses the, the vial as well. The other thing about her worship that she had no idea that was going on at the time is that she was part of a much bigger part of the story. She was a player in kind of this big scenario that's being unfolded. And she was actually preparing Jesus' body for, for, for burial, really. And who knows with us, times that we're in worship, times that we just go, I have to do this, that we're not part of a bigger story. We don't see it at the time. We don't really even understand the significance of what that decision is. But we're doing it purely out of gratitude and love for Jesus. What led her to her irresponsible worship? It was love, wasn't it? It was just love. It was passion. I want you to think for one moment the craziest thing you've ever done for love. Moms who've delivered a baby, done. You already know one of them, right? I mean, that's, that's one of them right there. Not a whole lot of logic that goes on to things we do for love sometimes, right? People even tell you, that's crazy. You're like, I know, but that's not even the point. I don't even care about that. And out of love, we do some, some really crazy things sometimes. God is seeking passionate worshipers. And the question is, how do I get there? How do I, how do I recapture passion? I put this picture of a departure sign because I think it means leaving where you are right now. Now, some of you might immediately go, well, you're speaking metaphorically, right? Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe God's got something for you, not in our borders of our country or our city. Maybe it does mean just leaving your little box of what worshiping God's all about. Your little pattern of life that frankly has gotten pretty comfortable. Let me just point out a couple of things very quickly. One is that a way to, to be a, a, a passionate worshiper of God is to, is to get to know Jesus and to recognize that Jesus was an exceedingly and excessive passionate person. When you choose Jesus, you choose on the side of passion. Jesus came to save us from our sins? Absolutely. He came to give us new life? Absolutely. But you know what else? He came to save us from the boring status quo life that we're imprisoned to without him. Think about it. Think about all the spiritual realities that open up when you're in a relationship with God as your father. Think about the possibilities that open up to your brain and your mind and your heart when the sovereign God of the universe has you in his hands and has provided you with everything you need. It blows apart the status quo. It blows apart your paradigm of what you thought was possible. What's passion? It's the opposite of boring. It's aliveness. It's, it's being enthusiastic. It's anticipating. It's wonder. It's living with expectancy. There are certain stories that, to me at least, and I think to a lot of us, stir up this longing. And they almost like whisper truths that we know are there, but they're just... They're drowned out by other voices. And one of those is found in the story of the prodigal son. There's this son that thumbs his nose, basically, and just turns his back on his family. Right? And he, he says something really shameful, basically. But he says, give me my inheritance right now. You know what he says to the father, in essence? You're as good as dead to me. I mean, in a way, that's like saying, I wish you were dead so I could have my money. So just give me the money. And he leaves. And we all know what he does with it, right? He goes off and he lives in the fast lane. He goes and he squanders it and he blows it all. The father is lovesick. And what we see in the story is the father never really gets over that loss. It's not like he goes, well, I still got another son. He's lovesick over this and he's heartbroken over this. The kid goes off and it ultimately lives leads to him living in, in pig slop. And this is where we all love this story. This is where it gets really, really good. As he's living in pig slop, he's living in squalor, and he's just, he's just a mess. And he comes to his senses. And he starts to come home to a father, like I said, that's never really recovered from the loss of this son. It turns out the father has been looking to the horizon for the son. And he's just hoping that the son will come back. And there's this amazing part of the story where you get the sense where there's this, this speck on the horizon. 
And as it grows in size, the father begins to realize that's the gate of my son. And the father does something next that is shocking, that's socially unacceptable, and that's this. He picks up his, his garment, his robe in essence. And he picks it up, exposing his white calves, no, no, no doubt, and he just breaks out into a run. And he starts running toward this boy that said, you're as good as dead to me. Give me. And had bolted. Turns out, the son wasn't looking for the father, but the father was looking for the son. The father was looking for the wayward child. Not only does he pick up and launch into a run, but after the embrace, after the tears, you know what he says? He says, go get me a calf. Go get me a robe. Go get me a ring. Put it on this kid. Tonight we party. My son's home. And it's illogical. And the voices of reason just launch out. We hear it in the older brother. You can't just forgive someone like that. They'll just do it again. They burned you. They need to pay for their decision of running off like that. They will not learn the lesson unless they have to do some hard labor. Don't throw a party. The father ignores all of that. And that's where it, it turns into this story of like scandalous grace that is totally and utterly irresponsible. And that's the picture of the heart of God to every one of us. That's the Jesus that we're following. Jesus communicates this story to shatter people's perception of what was going on with worship and religion and spirituality and trying to get close to God. It's not that you're an adult and you've got it figured out and you've got things pretty well handled. It's that you thumbed your nose at God, took off, and when you humble yourself to come home and say, if only God will let me just have a tiny corner of a little peon job in his kingdom, I'd be so much better off than where I am right at this moment. And God welcomes you in as a son and celebrates that. You recover lost passion not only by recognizing Jesus, by, but by also seeking for it. And looking to recover. I say recover because I think we had it all once. I think as children, there's a sense of passion and wonder that's there. That sadly, much of that does get trained out of us and taught out of us. Passion is taught out of us in these kinds of words. And I'm not saying all of these are wrong because I say them sometimes. But parents, watch how you shape the heart of your kids. Listen to this. Careful. Work it out logically, son, daughter. Let me see all the pieces before we move forward with this. Be fiscally responsible. Act sensibly. In essence, a message can begin to emerge that says this. Walk by sight, not by faith. Right? Unless I see all the pieces right lined up, there's no way you're going to go off to that place. And we can get in this mode that works counter to what Jesus has called us to do. He said things like this. Whoever loses his life for me will find it. Kids have this sense about trust. This is a picture of my son. This is what goes on in our backyard. Do you know how deep that pool is? It's like this deep. Without warning, here's what my children do. They dive head first into that pool. He ended up being totally okay. I, don't, I think I was taking a picture of Ethan acting like a walrus or something when all of a sudden Curran jumps into the shot. But there's something about kids that, I mean, logic says don't do this, right? Don't dive headfirst into a one-inch deep pool. That's just not real smart. But there's something about kids that teach us about defying gravity and trust. You'll tell a kid, jump to me. And in their brains, they can't really process that it makes sense. But they trust your voice. And so they go, okay. And they jump. I love that. I love putting my kids in places where, where they have to do that because one day I want to hand that off and say, now, now do that with your spiritual father. You know I have nothing but good intended for you, so obey me. But I'm scared. I know. 
It's okay. I'll catch you. And kids have this, this sense about them. That's why we keep having kids. We're allowed to act irresponsibly, right? We get to shop in the toy aisle. I love it. But it really does. Listening and engaging with children. I mean, I could do a shameless plug for children's helpers right now. Go spend time with kids. It will change something in you. Start to view the world through their eyes on some level. Go ahead. Dive in head first. Finally, know that it always takes risk to live passionately. Wasn't it risky for, for, for Mary to do this? I think she knew. She, she knew it was inappropriate to let her hair down and wipe Jesus' feet. But you know what? She took what she had, a vial of perfume, tears, hands, hair, a body, and she used all of that to just say, I love you. Something about, you know, sending a thank you card when someone raises your brother from the dead just doesn't seem to be quite enough. You know, plate of nice cookies, that's getting warmer, but it just doesn't communicate, right? And she knew that. She's like, I know Hallmark says that when you care enough to send the very best, but that's not enough. And so she does the extreme and she, and she goes way further than that. And it was a risk. It was a risk of what people would think about her. This is a picture of me and a, and a guy in China. The guy to my right, the uh, taller gentleman, he was a pastor um, of something like 60 house churches in China in this massive area. And he was dirt poor. He wore that same outfit almost every single day that we saw him. Working his tail off for Jesus. Amazing guy. And then trying to play host to, to us. We're at this church right now and... Um, God's just wired me this way. I don't know why, but uh, I, I, just, I just saw this man, and, um, and I went over, and I, and I asked if I could take his picture with him. And um, he didn't speak English, which was a shock, because we were deep in the interior of China. And uh, so I'm like, well, you know, body language communicates. So I just put my arm around him, and I think Glenn's taking the picture or something. Do you see how warmed up that fellow seems to me? Okay. Now, sometimes people do this. I mean, this is just the way it goes. Sometimes people go, oh, and they kind of break down and they'll smile. And, you know, usually I can get people laughing and kind of relaxed. Sometimes not. <laughs> uh, this, this guy didn't really change his expression. <laughs> and so I kind of left him alone. But you know what? In befriending people, in putting yourself out there, hey, how are you doing? You'll sometimes get, fine, what's it to you? It's a risk to be in a relationship with people, isn't it? It's a risk to, to do the things that are on, on your heart. Sometimes God just, I feel like God prompts me, go and talk to that person. And my typical response, like yours would be, is why? <laughs> you know, I'm just trying to have a nice time at my, you know, with my family at the beach or, or whatever else. And, and on my better days, and as I'm trying to grow, I say, okay, <laughs> this makes no sense. This must be from the Lord. And sometimes when you go and talk to someone, you have no idea why you talk to them. And they're just like this guy right here. Body language, stiff, pulling away. Who are you? Sometimes they just open up and they go, man, you're a godsend. Do you know that? And I'm like, I know this sounds arrogant, but yeah, I do. And it, it involves risk when you obey Jesus. It just does. Sometimes in little ways. This cost me very little. That didn't put me out much that the guy didn't warm up to me. Sometimes it costs a lot. And I don't know what it all went on for Mary, but I, I know that it, that it costs her to be that wild in her abandon. I want to just end this morning, and we're going we're gonna to have a season and a little bit of worship. But I want to tell you about someone who lived and is living an irresponsible life. I was at Pete's this week, and um, I was reading this passage, and here's what I was praying I was just sitting there and I was like, Lord, how on earth, how on earth do you want me to take pure nard and bring that into 2009? We don't even really know what pure nard is. That just sounds like a bad cooking experiment, right? And so, Lord, just help me with this. I was sitting here, my Bible opened to this passage, praying this. And you know what I felt? I felt a person standing right here. I had my headphones in. And it would be a little weird for this person to be here because it was really invading my space. And as I look up, I look into the face of a guy named Jeff. I've not seen Jeff in about five years. 
Jeff was a friend of mine that, frankly, as we prayed through whether we would allow him on junior high staff to help lead our junior high school students at Los Gatos Christian Church, it was kind of one of those where it's like sometimes you're bringing someone on because you know they're just going to totally help the ministry. Once in a great while, you, you, you kind of take the risk and go on, I think it's going to help this person too. I don't know if they'll help the junior hires or not. That was a little bit where Jeff was. He was kind of on the fence with me a little bit. We took Jeff on to junior high leadership, and Jeff just would show up faithfully. He was a pretty new Christian. He had lived a lot of this world. And we just said, Jeff, stay close to someone, and, and he began to minister and serve. And, and as years went on, Jeff began to, to show up with me. He, he came down to Mexico with me. I don't know how many times, but just, just a lot of ministry, a lot of frontline sacrificial ministry. And week after week after week after week, I just saw the fruit of the Spirit pouring out of this guy. And one day, I'll never forget it, we're at what, what we used to call swimming studies, which was just backyard. We had all these backyard Bible studies going on every Tuesday night at a lot of different homes. And at the one that I was in charge of and, and at that time, Jeff was there. And Jeff came up to me one time after swimming studies. He said, Dave, I need to talk to you. I said, all right, let's talk. He said, I know this sounds really weird, but I've been out walking late at night. And, um, and God's been just calling me to, to minister uh, outside of junior high staff. Now, don't worry, I'm not leaving the, the uh, team or anything like that. But I just, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. And I said, Jeff, I'm like, that's so exciting, man. I said, can we just start to pray about this? I said, let me commit to you. I will join with you in praying about what God is leading you to do. Can we just do that? And he's like, yeah, that sounds cool. He didn't have anything else at that point. I'm going to let Jeff tell his story in his own words, because here's what I said to Jeff. I turned to Jeff in the coffee shop on Wednesday or Tuesday, one of the days. I said, Jeff, I cannot believe that you're standing here right now. I said, how have you been? And we began to have a dialogue and talk. And partway through that, I just I asked him, I said, Jeff, are you able to be at my church this Sunday? And he said, no, I can't. I said, well, fine. I'm going to write you some email questions. I want you to write some stuff down. Can I just use part of your story? Because you've lived an irresponsible, passionate life for Jesus. Here's, here's kind of Jeff's story in his own words a little bit. <clears throat> I, asked him, I asked him to share a little bit about the process of moving up to Berkeley, and here it is. The process of moving up to Oakland and Berkeley lasted on and off for nearly two years. Jeff and I prayed for a solid year together. And it took that long. And each time there would be some questions back and forth and prayer. And I didn't want to just flippantly give him, well, I think you should be a missionary. Or you should go to school and be a pastor. We didn't know. We were just praying. And there was this unsettling. And I knew he was walking with Jesus. And so I knew this must be from the Lord. For nearly two years, he says, it began with God giving me an intense, heightened sensitivity to the lostness of the world. I wasn't sure where to start, but I felt particularly burdened for those less fortunate than I. People who have been kicked to the curb in life, the refuse of society. Isn't that just like God? You know that's not from you. I feel called to the professional surfing organization, but I know that's from me. You know what I mean? Like nice hotels, big waves, but, but this must be from the Lord. Jeff goes on. I began volunteering down at City Team Ministries, as well as walking the streets of downtown San Jose, sometimes in the wee hours of the morning or even all night long. On these midnight missions when I wasn't praying, I often encountered different, mostly homeless individuals and tried to minister to them as best I could. Over time, God graduated me from the midnight missions, minor leagues, to the big leagues of San Francisco and Oakland. After many miraculous experiences doing midnight missions, and after feeling a sense that I was more at home in a strange place like Oakland than I was in my home city, I decided to try living up there for a year. All of these midnight missions commutes were killing me. I remember Jeff would say he'd show up Sunday morning. He had a van, and he looks like the uh, guy Shaggy from Scooby-Doo. It was a perfect fit. And he'd show up super tired. And if it was one of my other leaders... In a different scenario, I might be worried about what he was doing Saturday night, not Jeff. And Jeff would tell me about some of these trips that he would do. So in August of 1997, I transferred from the Campbell Whole Foods in Berkeley, uh, it, from the Campbell Whole Foods to the Berkeley store. A few weeks later, I answered an ad in the paper that said, Ministry Home for Anyone Desiring Spiritual Growth. 
This was the home that I came to serve in for six years in East Oakland. He made a comment that I wanted him to expand on. He says, he says, ministry equals pain, Dave. That's what he said to me. As his story continues, he says, he says here, he says, well, it doesn't always equal pain, but it can be painful, messy, thankless. He says, I think that if we look at the scriptures, we'll see that anyone who seeks to carry out God's agenda will inevitably encounter difficult, difficulty and resistance. It's just not an easy road. Thankfully, God is gracious and doesn't have us at war all the time. I also believe that we should ask God which wars we should wage. It would appear that some of us are destined for more intense experiences than others. Why is this? I cannot say. Ultimately, I think it is centered around testing and proving whether or not our faith is indeed authentic. He also made this comment that he was more shrewd than when he left San Jose. I said, what do you mean by that? He says, how am I more shrewd? Well, besides being a bit more blunt, vulgar, and hostile, I now have little or no tolerance to what I consider to be trivial matters conflicting with high priorities. This comes from an understanding that life is way too precious and short to waste on pettiness. He says, I am shrewd toward traditions and attitudes in the church that are more American or Bay Arean than they are biblical. I asked him what it costs him. I said, Jeff, you look battle-worn. You don't look like some naive kid heading off to, to Bible college or something. So what does it cost you being up in East Oakland for six years? Here's what he writes back. What did it cost me? Some of the best years of my life. If you count the years leading up to it, eight years. While other kids my age were going to school, traveling the world, having boyfriends and girlfriends, getting married and having kids, I was in the trenches of the East Oakland hood. I chose to own... Um, I, I chose to not own anything nice during those years because items of greater monetary value tended to get stolen. The few things that I did have, excluding my guitar, were stolen, mostly stuff out of my van, even simple things like groceries. It cost me a lot of my personal privacy, living with up to 60 strangers at one time, sharing a house with one kitchen and three bathrooms. I never dated during those years, and friends my age were few and far between. It cost me a lot of sleep, waking uh, working late hours and then waking up every day for mandatory morning devotions, 6.30 to 8 a.m. My standards for sanitation were sacrificed. Living in a house that was a challenge to keep clean and therefore a welcome place for rats, roaches, and germs. When the bills weren't paid, we lost the luxury of PG&E and water. I sacrificed, financial, uh, my, I, I sacrificed my finances several times in order to have such things turned back on, as well as to have the garbage, uh, the, the the pastor was a pack rat, he said, um, hauled away from property lest the city fine us or evict us. Sometimes people smoked crack in my room when I was at work or in my van when I was asleep and possibly used it as a place for prostitution. My greatest loss was after six years of living like this, pouring out my heart and soul, I had a total and complete nervous breakdown. Something that took me years to recover from and a wound that I think I will carry with me for the rest of my life. I said, Jeff, how have you healed? How have you been healing? Here's what he writes. Primarily, what I feel like I needed more than anything else was time to heal. Lots and lots of time. I also felt that I needed for God to leave me alone. Ever been in a depth of relationship with, your, with God that you just say, leave me alone? When my life fell apart in 2002, I felt God was cruel and that I was worthless to him. For most of 2003, I took a few extended leaves of absence from work, often laying low at my mom's house. I was on antidepressant medication and was under the care of a psychologist. In the fall of 2003, I went to Europe by myself for a month. He says, I called that the trip that saved my life. During that trip, I remembered who I was. I began to regain hope that I could change my life, that I had a sense that there was a future for me. Some of the most beautiful moments of my life were on that trip, and indeed it was a welcome gift. When I returned to the Bay, I had fresh resolve to totally revamp my life. I moved out of an unhealthy living situation and found a stable home that could afford me the peace and consistency that for years I had lacked. Finally, I asked him this question, what advice would you give someone who says, man, I'm hearing the voice of God? In other words, I said, Jeff, you and me back at that pool at some of the studies, what advice would you give them? Catch this now, ready? I would tell them to go for it. He says, you only live once. 
And if you are sure that it is God that is leading you, I can guarantee you. What does he guarantee? That it won't be a dull ride. (laughs) Even though it can cost you to have faith and trust in God, the adventure and experience has a payoff. I think it is far better than the ordinary, predictable, and often unfulfilling status quo. I would never wish to repeat the experiences I went through, yet it serves me to this day. I'm a better man for it, a stronger man for it, and the lessons I have gleaned through it will aid me for the rest of my life. He says it also makes for one exciting story. I don't think that lasting character comes to us any other way but through difficulties and challenge. My years at the home, which he calls it, and the process it took to get there have broadened my view of God, life, the world, and human beings. And that I would not trade. Catch this that he ends with. Because I was able to have faith in this instance, I can go to my grave in peace, knowing rather than being haunted with the pain of wondering. That's a guy who, unless there's a world that we can't see, unless there's an eternity to be living for, instead of just what's here, is completely irresponsible in the negative sense. I would say he's irresponsible in the merry sense of this passage. I want to invite the band up right now. And as they come up, there's lots of other worship going on. Read, read on ahead about the crowds. There's some superficial praise of the triumphal entry. We're not even going to touch into that. There's also the leaders that we looked at pretty extensively last week. Their worship was position and power. I want to just key in on Judas here for one moment. Judas's God is money. Judas is a worshiper of money. And in this passage, he speaks in favor of and defending his God. He speaks not because he cares about the poor. He speaks because he cares about his God being flippantly given away in worship to this Jesus. And as we go to worship right now, as we continue in worship right now, I want you to ponder and think through some of the questions that our community groups are going to wrestle with this week. Have you lost your passion? As I talk about a passionate life, is there something in you that says, man, I used to have that. I used to be that passionate. Remember there's a thief. He only comes to steal and kill and destroy. What does Jesus come to give? A full life. Is your life full? What does worship look like to you? Who or what do you sacrifice for? Who or what do you pay attention to? Who or what do you live to please and speak out in defense of? And finally, what crazy call of love is Jesus stirring in you? Come and talk to someone about that. Come and let them process life with you a little bit. Come get plugged into a community group. For some of you, maybe money has been your God. For many in our valley, they're watching their God die right before their very eyes. And their hope is being gone, taken away from them. I would say repent. Run to the living God and He'll embrace you. Follow Him. There's two classes that are going on right now. One is a budget mentoring class that Rich Henderson and Love, Inc. does. And some of you maybe need to look into that. There's a second thing that Rich is starting up that I absolutely love. It's just such an amazing timing with with all of this. He's calling it a giver's school. And it's basically looking at the biblical principles regarding giving. It's going to happen from 9 to 1030 right here at, at Neighborhood starting in March through June. It's going to be every third Saturday. It's not just going to be a class to come and accumulate more knowledge. It's going to be a, come to a class with homework and to really get into some principles about giving. Stewardship. The promises of God regarding money. They aren't all what you read and see on late night televangelist TV. And finally, attitudes that are essential to being a generous person like your father. We're going to sing some songs right now. We're going to go late. I'll just tell you that right now. We're five minutes over. We're going to go another solid ten minutes. If you need to slip out, no one's keeping score. 
slip out, get to your appointment. But if you're able to stick around, would you just celebrate now with some music? And, uh, and let's, let's just do that. Father, thank you so much that we're not relegated to some formula of worship. I thank you, God, for the variety and the unique experiences and personalities and dispositions that you've gathered at this church. Father, there are people in this community that you have for your kingdom that aren't a part of your church yet. Not Neighborhood Bible Church, but your church, your family. God, I pray that we would both have a physical posture of worship and also an action of worship that would be visible and evident and would look completely irresponsible if not for understanding the great love that we have from you. We love you, Lord, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. it all sound the same All my words getting through I've been trying so hard Now 